Hello friends, Molly Ponfadith here, CEO of the SOAR Community Network and co-founder of the SOAR Community Nebula. Our goal this year is to interview and bring to you 1,000 champions of change and community builders. And today I'm delighted to bring to you Darnley Hodge. Thank you so much for being a part of our initiative. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please reintroduce yourself and let us know what you're currently working on and doing in the world. Sure. Uh, my name is John Lee Hodge. I'm the founder of Imagination Media LLC, which is a full service video production company here based in Washington, D.C. Uh, we serve a who's who list of Fortune 500 companies, television networks, production companies and independent producers uh, who produce content for, for broadcast purposes, for promotional purposes, for the general public, etc. So uh, I like to say Imagination Media helps our audience, helps our clients reach the right audience at the right time with the right message. That's great. So what brought you into this world of uh, production, filmmaking, videography, etc.? I've been doing this a long time, longer than my actual professional resume would even indicate, because obviously your professional resume starts when you start doing this and earning a paycheck for it, right, or getting paid for it, which and that's been 23 years. However, I actually, I've actually been doing video production since I was in ninth grade. Okay, I was fortunate enough to go to a high school that had what they call the media marketing program. And our instructor, Terry McConnell, gave those of us who were interested in that field pretty much carte blanche to do whatever we wanted to do to learn about video production and editing. So we produced a weekly news television show for our high school. Uh, we produced other types of promotional videos. One of my teachers even hired me to, to shoot and edit her wedding at one point. And that laid the groundwork for um, what we later become my college career when I went to Virginia Commonwealth University. I majored in mass communications and continued uh, in the field. Refined my skills, refined my, my uh, understanding of it, and uh, landed my first jobs in radio at local radio stations in Richmond, and then my first television job at WTVR Channel 6 back in 1998. So I worked there for two years, started freelancing in Washington, D.C., then decided, you know what, I can freelance full time. So I quit my, my staff gig, and uh, began freelancing in Washington, D.C. full time. Two years later, I brought my first, I bought my first set of equipment of, that I own myself and then was off to the races, so to speak. Um, since then, the company has grown tremendously. We've, we've garnered, you know, upwards of 50 clients, uh, top, you know, quality clients. And, um, you know, we are where we are today. So there you go. Fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, I know that you're also very dedicated to telling powerful stories, showing different perspectives, and I would like for you to talk a little bit about that when we get down to the causes and movements that move you. Um, and uh, now I want to focus on the people in your life or situations in your life who have really impacted you and empowered you in some way. Is there anybody or a situation that happen in your life. You touched upon it earlier with your, with your high school experience, um, but is there somebody in your life that showed you extra love, compassion, and helped to empower you to become the person you are today? Absolutely. Obviously, you know, your parents are always the first answer. So that's, that's easy. I'm going to say, aside from my parents, okay, um, when I was an intern, my first internship I did was as a freshman in college, I did an internship at Black Entertainment Television. And I was originally in the marketing department, but that wasn't for me, I wanted to be in production. And the, the head of the music department, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, the director of the music department was a guy named Kevin Taylor. 
I told Kevin what I was trying to do, and he said, you know what? Quit that internship. I'll, I'll, I'll find this place for you over here, okay? So not only did Kevin first give me, um, first put me kind of on a track to do what I specifically wanted to do in that capacity and to learn from this, you know, major network how they do things, right? At the time, I was, I mean, I still am a musician. I played the saxophone and my minor degree is in jazz studies. Um, and at the time, I was, uh, I was the lead MC for a hip hop band that I had, right? And I was, the, I was a guy who was out here, hey, trying to shop my demo tape around and that kind of thing. Kevin was one who said, listen, this industry is changing. You can do this independently. People aren't looking for record deals anymore. So he's actually the one who said, listen, you can do this yourself. And gave me specific books to read, specific instruction in terms of learning about the music industry, learning about how to be an independent uh, record producer. And from there, I actually started a record label that I ran for 16 years. I released four albums, released another album by another artist named Gerard Anthony. We toured in Brazil, we toured in England, toured all over the US. And I did, and that seed was planted by Kevin Taylor. The reason that's relevant today is because that same sort of thread of thinking carried over into when I started my video production company. So what I do today, as far as with, with Imagination Media, is really following some of the same sort of uh, formula and ideas that Kevin told me to do when starting my record label when I was 19 years old. You know, so, you know, I'm 42 now and I'm still applying those, these principles that he, that he uh, first exposed me to back then. So I definitely have to give Kevin Taylor a huge uh, amount of credit for that uh, in, in terms of being the first person to really show me, you don't have to go through these companies, you don't have to go through these structures, you can create your own structure, you can create your own company, you can, you can manifest your own vision for your own future. And that's something that, I've, that has stuck with me and something I've learned more about and built on over the last you know, two and a half decades. Yeah. I tell you, mentors are invaluable. It's incredible. One seed that can be planted that changes everything for us. Um, so I know that you've been around a lot of people, especially because of the work that you do, um, and also clients, but also in the community, musicians, artists, actors, etc. When you have witnessed a community builder or a champion of change and they are in full-blown action, are there characteristics and attributes that are consistent among these people? I would say so. Um... You know, sometimes there's a, a, a saying that says something to the effect of, um, you know, it doesn't take, you know, you don't, you don't, it doesn't take 10 people to change the world. As a matter of fact, it's usually just one person, right? So I find that at the center of every effective organization, there's usually one visionary leader. <laughs> you know, it's, sometimes it's a team, but usually it's a single person who kind of holds that thing together, who's, who, who creates the, the context in which everything else happens within that organization, you know? Um, getting back to a specific example, the biggest example I have of that is my dad. My dad has spent his entire 40 plus years in law enforcement. He was actually the founder and the, um, or I should say the founder, he was the, um, the, the first director of the Clark Frederick Winchester Regional Jail. And he was, he's a pioneer in direct supervision facilities. The reason that's important is because we know obviously of the contentious relationship between African-American community and law enforcement. Now, here's a man who was in a position of power who has actually used his influence to try to, 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 to try to fix that. So I watched my dad firsthand create programs within his prisons that lowered the recidivism rate, that increased, um, that, that lowered the, the drug addiction. He, you could hit all his facilities were non-smoking, for example, whether you're a guard or a prisoner. You can't smoke anywhere on the property. You can't even go outside and smoke, you know. Uh, he's actually had 
some of his former inmates, and I've seen the letters myself, write him saying, thank God I got locked up in your facility because my life was changed as a result of being there. When my, he, my dad ran the Clark French Winchester Regional Jail for about 20 years, then he ran the Riverside Regional Jail in, in Hopewell, Virginia, right? And Hopewell, he actually got complaints from the jail board because the recidivism rate was so low that they were losing money. So they were, they were actually upset that, he, that his programs were so effective in keeping people from repeating, becoming repeat offenders. So he did the smart thing. He said, you know, okay, if it's about money, I'm not going to start, I'm not going to quit my programs. He called up Guantanamo and said, listen, you, you guys are um, overflow with prisoners. Send me some of them. I house some of them. And he charged them to hold their prisoners. He charged, he, he, he called a lot of the overcrowded jails around the country. He said, send me your extra prisoners. And he basically charged them to hold their prisoners. So he didn't raise the recidivism rate, found a way to alleviate the problem with these other jails all around the country and satisfy the jail board's desire to have more money without exploiting our community, without victimizing our community, the way so many people in those types of positions have historically done. So that, and it's not just because he's my dad, even if I had heard about him elsewhere, I'd have been like, man, this guy Darnley Hodge Sr. is on the right track. He actually retired five years ago after 40 years in the field, and he just came out of retirement two years ago when he runs the New Orleans jail. He, he runs the New Orleans jail now, which is a notoriously corrupt uh, jail system but if you google the latest articles on Darnley Hodge and um and the New Orleans jail you'll find that their violent their 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 acts of violence have plummeted the um uh, uh inmate um injuries and officer injuries have plummeted um so he is he's he's come out of retirement to be be effective in one of the most notoriously corrupt facilities in the nation really and and it's working, you know, so I'm really inspired by the work that I see my dad do in terms of being that single visionary. And again, this is a field of law enforcement. This is a deep, good old boys culture that goes back hundreds of years. And he's of he, he is that single person within his organization that has the vision and has the ability to kind of crack through that and weave, and weave through that and still make effective change that benefits us. Um, as a people, obviously, as an African-American, I'm very concerned about the collective condition of African-Americans within the society. And it's, for me, it's, it's um, very inspiring to firsthand know someone who is making, making tangible, measurable improvement and progress in one of the most important areas, which is the way, which is criminal justice, you know? So uh, in that regard, you know, I, I have to give it to my dad, uh, Darnley Hodge Sr. for that. Darnley, I feel like I just interviewed two champions of change in one interview. Thank you for highlighting and spotlighting your father. I hope to meet him one day because it sounds like he is an extraordinary human being and um, masterful problem solver. Absolutely. I think he's got that left side of the brain working just as well as, uh, you know, the big heart-centered vision for the world. So um, thank you for sharing. Absolutely. And can, I, and can I add to that? Yes, please. When you talk about problem solver, now, aside from the specific ways in which he solved problems, what that's done as an example for me is, is say, is, is forced me to say, listen, how can I find solutions because if he can find solutions within such a hostile and anti-progress sort of environment, I can definitely do it in television production or film or, you know what I mean, these kind of things, right? Um, and so it, it, it basically takes away any sort of idea that there's any sort of um, uh, uh, reason for me to not do, you know, be able to do well and do good. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You're uh, preaching to the choir here. Right. Of course. <laughs> So as we move now into um, movements and causes that matter to you, 
you spelled it out very clearly what cause matters to your father and also obviously it matters to you. Um, what causes and movements are you using your gifts, your talents, your life and work experiences to propel forward? Having worked in television news for 23 years now, I found that I was a few years ago, not just a few years ago, I say it, should, it culminated a few years ago with the headlines around Trayvon Martin, around Mike Brown, around a lot of the extradition killings of young black men. Um, and I was dissatisfied with the discussion being had around that, around that phenomenon. Uh, covering mainstream news every single day and listening to people kind of talk about the topic, I'm saying, man, there's so much that's not being said. So I decided to start a second company called Blackamore Films, whereby I produce products that address a lot of those holes, that I, those gaps that I feel are, are present in the mainstream discussion. So I've, I've worked on a project for the last several years um, called the American Lows that examines the, the real roots of this, of this sort of phenomenon, the real roots of the psychology behind it, and offers concrete solutions and concrete um, ideas as to the way forward. You know, my, to be more specific about the cause that I'm about is improving the collective condition of the collective African-American condition, improving the collective condition of African-Americans within the system. And I feel as though if we're given, no one will rise, no one can ever advance past the vision that they have for themselves. You're not gonna advance past your level of self-respect. You're not gonna advance past, the, nobody goes further than your level of self-respect. Nobody goes further than the vision that they have for themselves. So the idea behind uh, this, my film projects are to offer another vision, to offer another perspective on the conversation that I think more, that I think better serves uh, those of us who are trying to improve our collective condition. That's fantastic, very powerful. Well, we love to follow that project. So, you know, we'll share any information that you have to our community about this film that you're working on. I think it's a very important film that needs to be out there. And uh, I think that it can serve multiple communities, multiple communities of color, um, because I think that it's the overarching, again, that seed that was planted, are we nurturing it to full bloom or are we nurturing it for to create toxicity in the world, right? Exactly. Those are the conversations that are very important to have, especially now more than ever. So thank you for putting your energy and your heart and your love and your finances Absolutely. into building something <laughs> that is so critical for all of us to benefit from. As we move uh, through this interview, the next question that I would like to ask of you to share with our community is, you know, as a filmmaker, as a producer, as an artist, really, it's not always easy. You've had failures, you've had successes, you've had a lot of lessons learned. When things are difficult and things are not meant necessarily going your way, how do you move forward? Um, are there quotes, are there philosophies or mottos that are mantras that you say to yourself? What can you share with our community? That's a very interesting question because there are a few assumptions built into the question. I don't believe that I don't believe in the idea of setbacks. In other words, for me, a setback is just saying you're going the wrong way and you, you might need to be kind of nudged a little bit to move this way, you know what I mean? So I don't, you know, of course, there, there are plans that specific plans of execution or things that you may have or that I might I may have had that didn't work out the way I expected. But I can say that any good objective that I was pursuing, I've always achieved. 
And I think it's because, again, you know, I'm not a person who, um, I don't subscribe to the sort of Western idea of like believing in God. I know God is real. So I allow the creator to guide my steps and guide my life. And I've never been led wrong. And I won't, and I won't be, and I have confidence in that. And I know that. And again, it's not a belief. Like, I don't believe I'm talking to you right now. I know I'm talking to you. And I know that my steps are guided. And I know that when I pursue a righteous cause, it will be successful. And it always has been, and it always will be. So I don't really subscribe to the idea of setbacks per se, as much as, as much as, you know, okay, I thought that I would have to go this route, but that might be the actual thing that seems to be the way I needed to go. You follow me? Um, I don't believe that obstacles are on the way to success. I believe that obstacles are the way to success. You follow me? So, you know. <laughs> I love that. That's, that's no, I love that. Obstacles are on the way to success. That is, that is a very powerful statement that you just made there. Um, that's why I repeated it so people can really take notes on that because I think that is absolutely on point. Um, our society has taught us to you know, look at when things don't go our way as a failure. And I think more and more now we're having broader discussions around uh, what failure really is. I mean, is it really failing? Or is it really propelling you forward, right? Is it really highlighting and giving you hints and clues as to a pivot that needs to be made? Um, exactly. Or a do-over or a try again. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, look, look at it this way. If you're driving in your car, and you know you're, you're, you're you know you hit you hit a detour and you have to reverse to go the right way. Well, that's hey, it's not a setback. You're just correcting course. You know you you don't want to stay on the same course just to in the name of going forward. Well, you're going forward the wrong way. So actually, going back is actually more of a benefit than going forward if it's, if you hit the forward is the wrong direction, right? So um, again, you know, you sometimes a setback is just reversing so you can go the take the other fork in the road. You know, um, I, I also. But I believe that what's key to that is having an understanding that, you know, we have a purpose, you know, we have a calling, we have um, talents and abilities and, and interests that are all within us so that we can manifest something good in the world and, and make the world a better place. And I believe that as long as you're listening to that and you're following that, you will end up where you're supposed to be. I think a lot of times when we find people who are confused or, or uh, discouraged, by the journey that they're kind of on, I think a lot of times you'll find these are folks who may, in a lot of cases, at least in my experience, be trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. They're trying to achieve a goal that someone else told them should be their goal, or, or an objective that somebody else told them that should be their objective, or, or a, um, uh, a standard of success that someone else told them is success, or standard of beauty that somebody else told them was beauty. You follow me? So by the same way in which one has to appreciate their own standard of beauty, you have to appreciate your own standard of success. <laughs> you know, if, if for me, I've, I, I've been programmed to think that some attributes that I don't possess are, are the key to my success, well, or, or, or attributes that I'm not even capable of possessing, for example, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm six foot four, 300 pounds, right? I can never go skydiving, for example, right? Because I'm just too heavy. It doesn't, it doesn't work. But if I, if I allow myself to say, oh man, I can just never go skydiving. I really want, it's like, that's just not in the car, you know, be okay with what you can and you can't do, you know, and find what's for you. Okay. I don't know if that was the best example in the world. My point though, is that we each have our strengths. We each have our, our, 
Um, well, we all have strengths, you know, I, I don't know about even the concept of weaknesses, uh, that's, that's a little debatable, you know, but I believe we all have strengths. And I believe if you, if you have knowledge of yourself, you know who you are, you learn, you play to your strengths, uh, success is almost inevitable. You know, I don't really know of, I don't really meet too many people who don't achieve what they're genuinely after if they're pursuing it in the right way. Like, I don't really know too many failures. <laughs> you know, seriously, it's, you know, um, you know, folks who I, who, who, who I talk to, even people, people who feel like they might be failing, it's usually it's not that they're failing, they're pursuing the wrong goal. Once they start pursuing the right goal, then they have success, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that it's necessarily really a matter of um, I'm on the way to a right place and something's keeping me from getting there. I, I haven't really seen that happen. You know, I, I can't really say that I've seen an example of somebody trying to pursue a righteous objective and they just never, they just never make it if they stay persistent or stay consistent, you know? Well, I have a really um, interesting question for you and I'd love to hear your perspective. If you could design or produce <laughs> um, a better world, what would it look like through your eyes? Wow, um, man, I mean, the the well here's the thing if everybody treated everyone else the way they like to be treated that would be it yeah. we just we live in a world where we want different rules for that guy than we want for ourselves once you eliminate that quality all the wars in all the poverty ends all the hunger ends all the exploitation is all the sexism racism all that stuff ends but we live in a world whereby i want a particular rule for myself that does not apply to you Mm -hmm. I want access that you can't have. I want resources that you can't have. I want education or I want knowledge or understanding or whatever that I believe somebody else shouldn't be able to have. Mm -hmm. That's the one improvement that I think I would make if I had that ability because I believe that's the singular, that's the singular characteristic of the human condition that causes all of the tension and strife that exists today. You know, when I... When I go through these interviews and I hear the responses, the concepts, or at least the words that we use to describe them, are so simple. And yet they're so complex. Um, you know, the, the one thing that I really appreciate about this interview series is really how we all pretty much want the same things. Maybe we're describing it in different ways, and philosophically we might come at it at a different angle, but we ultimately want the same things. So the question then, that I pose to all of us is, why can't we make it as easy as it sounds? You know, what, what could we do to break those barriers so it can be as simple as the words that we use, treat somebody else as, as, as how you want to be treated, right? Um, give love, give empathy, you know, show compassion. So simple and yet so profoundly complex. Absolutely, because there's still the, we still have to contend with the reality of limited resources. However, I believe that if, I mean, again, part of the problem is that, or part of the challenge is that we live within so many different mandate constructs, including political borders. You know, there's no actual border between America and Mexico, but we all agree that there is one. I mean, if this president has his way, there will be a physical barrier. But my point, though, is that, you know, there's no physical barrier between, say, um, Washington, D.C. and Maryland. We just agree that, okay, at this point, this, this city stops and this one starts, whatever, right? And because of these man-made constructs, 
political borders being an example, that hinders the transfer of resources in a way that would be beneficial to everyone. So yeah, people, we have a surplus in some countries where people are, you have a, 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 an epidemic of obesity. There's, there's a surplus, there's an over, we're hemorrhaging food, we're hemorrhaging resources in certain countries. And then you have other countries that are completely starved of resources. If it were not for these man-made constructs, these political borders, there's no reason the ones with the surplus can't help those with the lack. And now everyone, everybody has, you know, everyone can, can share equally. So I believe that in spirit, people agree in general with the idea of, you know, hey, everyone treat everyone the way they like to be treated. Everyone give everyone what they, what they you know, even, even exchange of, of information and resources and these kind of things. However, we have to contend with the reality of a lot of these political constructs that we're stuck in, you know? So I think once we get, if we can ever get past that, or if we can even work out cooperative relationships between nations and between societies and environments that lack with those who have too much, right? Again, that once, you know, people have a problem with this idea of resource redistribution, but that is absolutely what it would be necessary in order for their, for everyone to be sort of on the even plane, you know? There's, there's this myth that, well, you know, well, you have these, if you have, you know, if I'm working so hard and I built up my company, I shouldn't have to give my stuff to somebody else. But, you know, you had people working for you at that company. That company is probably established on land that your ancestors stole from somebody else. So what about that? <laughs> you know, so you have, for example, American corporations who say, oh, well, I built this business. Well, what is the country built on, though? You follow me? So there's a lot of, um, th there are a lot of, there are multiple effects with multiple causes that we're suffering from in this world right now. It's not a singular one-to-one -one sort of ratio thing. And until we can figure out a way to make that the priority, to make even distribution or fair, at least, equitable distribution of resources a priority, there will always be these inequities because the reason that uh, for example, women are discriminated against in the workplace. Why? Because, oh, well, I want to get the big paycheck, and so that means you have to get paid less. It's like, no, well, we can all be paid the same, and everybody can still be employed, and everybody can still thrive, you know? But there's the idea of you have a few men who say, no, we have to be paid more, and you have to be paid less. It's like, that's ridiculous, you know? So that, and, and but that stems from a fear from, and, and really what this really is about, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, all of this is about fear. Right. This is about people being afraid that if I were to share, if I were to show compassion to somebody else, that I would somehow be adversely affected. If I were to share resources with somebody else, that somehow I'll have fewer resources, I'll be adversely affected. The idea that even though I have a billion dollars, I don't want to let this person get uh, a food stamp because somehow that's going to adversely affect me. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, so once we once we can get past once we can create a, a or I should say, um, I believe that more emphasis could and should be placed on rectifying that psychological disposition because that psychological disposition is what causes people to take action that reinforces that psychological disposition, right? The actions are all based on, uh, actions are all rooted in thoughts. You have to have a thought before you can have an action. And so people are thinking in this fearful way that if I were to share what I have, if I were to give you credit, if I were to say, you know, hey, you know, African Americans have been at rock and roll and country and bluegrass and, and jazz and hip hop. Somehow I'm, you know, I can't give them that credit. You know, you know, it's like, why not? <laughs> you know, why not allow people to to share in the abundance on whatever level exists in the world? You know, 
So I think you just I think you just answered why the actions that we must take is is so complex to get to to get to people acting on the words that we just chose today, right? Treating each other. I think you just answered some of the challenging ways in which that is um, causing this, like you said, cycle, right? right? It's all mindset. It's all helping, and our goal is to hopefully help raise the level of consciousness for each indi pers indi individual person to really open their hearts and minds to a perspective that may not be their own. Um, and that perspective may be an answer to something that is better than what we have today. And I agree. Just that open-mindedness, that ability to listen to someone else's perspective could shift something. And it starts between the independent exchanges, right? <clears throat> you and I have a conversation today. You shifted me. I shifted you. Then what you planted inside of me gets then shared and planted elsewhere. And I don't know how we can exponentially speed this up, but that's what it's going to take. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we, we live in a, in, a, in a society, in a world, I believe, where I, I believe these conversations continue, need to continue to be had and that, you know, the various actions, like as you just outlined, that result from them will hopefully create an environment whereby, you know, one of the things I say is like people's minds are like, are like rubber bands, right? You know, so you, you can only stretch it so far. You can only give it so much before it snaps. So you can't give everybody too much. You can stretch it to a certain degree, but after you leave, a lot of times it snaps back to what it originally was. But a rubber band might be a little looser than it was before you stretched it. You follow me? So I think that even just, I think there are so many factions within the world that are just, that are just stuck in, their way of thinking and just refuse to even they're afraid to, and it goes back to fear afraid to even expose themselves to different ideas because they're afraid to change their mind because they don't want their mind changed right. you know so so they're they're they're, they're actually there are people running around who are fearful that if they expose themselves to a new idea or to an unfamiliar idea that they will then see some wisdom in it and want to change what they do However, their greed and their fear and, and wanting to hold on particular resources or hold on their, their particular fiefdom or their corner of the world or their sphere of influence is so, um, they're, they're so worried about losing that, that they don't even want to take the chance in listening to you or listening to me or listening to somebody else who might give them a perspective that's different from their own, you know? Well, let's see how we can turn the sphere of change into um, the opportunity that this world needs um, right. the fear of change hopefully we can turn it into uh, a desire for change a desire for change thank you so much darnley for your time today i really appreciate it. i feel like we have to have a part two part three and a part four to this conversation i love your passion uh, i love that the goal for you is to share your perspective which when we produce and when we speak our truth and our version of the truth out loud, it gets received. And then it's up to these folks that are receiving the information to decipher what it means to them. But when we don't speak and we don't share, there is no shift. It's just the same. And so I appreciate that you are willing to put yourself out there through your gifts, your talents, and through your desire for change. Um, to keep up the good work, to keep up the passion, and to, to spread more light into very, very complex and tough um, issues that we face today. I value you. I appreciate you. 
Um, is there anything that we can do to support you before we wrap up the interview? Absolutely. Um, my website for my television production company is imaginationmediallc.com. Anyone who's looking to reach the right audience with the right time, with the right message, call us and we can definitely help you to hone your message and get it on video in a way that's compelling and that furthers your mission. Um, as far as my film production company, Blackamore Films, you can go to, uh, for the latest project, The American Lows, L-O-W-S, the same way it sounds, theamericanlows.com to learn more about that. To add to what you said just before we close, I think uh, one key element in sort of fixing this entire dynamic is debunking so many of the lies and myths that exist around so many different types of groups and people and just everything in the world, right? So I believe that what's key is that we have to first become real and for first have a, a real understanding of, of, of history and of society and operate from that understanding as opposed to operating understanding of a lot of these myths and a lot of these made up sort of narratives that we go by in society. So once we can actually first get out of the fantasy world of myth and into the, the real world of reality, then we can move forward. You know, as an example, once we get past the myth, for example, that African-Americans history begins with slavery and understand that we have thousands of years of history goes back to the continent and work with that understanding, then we can actually make some progress in the country as it is. But as long as we stick with this myth that you know, we started with slavery. Well, you can't rise past, it's hard to get past that. You know what I mean? So in order to, in order to have a, a positive way forward, I think we have to have a, a clear understanding and a realistic understanding of how we got to where we are and debunk a lot of the sort of fables and myths and, and, and false narratives that exist around the human condition as it even, as it even is today. Thank you, darling. Thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate you. Thank you for watching, friends out there. I know you got a lot of passion from this interview. I did too. And if you have any uh, comments that you'd like to make, please share your perspective. Please visit us and also remember to nominate yourself and nominate somebody else in your community who's doing a fantastic job um, shifting their community in a positive way. Visit us at nebula.soarcommunitynetwork.com. Thank you so much. Thanks, darling. Thank you.